Hello, and welcome to the Blip Reports interview series. My guest today, Jeff Speck, author of Walkable City, informed me that last Friday was Walk to Work Day. And then he said this. Isn't it time we retire this holiday? Because it's a preposterous concept. Only one in 37 Americans walk to work. Um, And in fact, there are things to celebrate that would make walking more possible. But the idea of telling the typical American that they should walk to work in in a nation where work has been so ruthlessly separated from home is a bit of a a sad joke. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. Life isn't that simple. Very, very historical. You gotta understand, this is a small town. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. Life isn't that simple. I'm here to confront you. I hope that every one of you contributes to the conversation of our culture and our time. A lot of the topics on the Blip Report have dealt with America's bad health. So I wanted to ask Jeff how he connected America's car-centric design with our current health crisis. The most amazing book I I read, I, I always say the, the best day to be a city planner was August 7th, 2004, when a book came out called Urban Sprawl and Public Health. And this was a book written by uh, three epidemiologists um, who said, um, actually, we have an urban planning problem. And the, the reason that we have the first generation of Americans who are expected to live shorter lives than their parents is because we've engineered out of existence the useful walk in our communities. And uh, the American obesity crisis is at its heart an urban design crisis, and the solution lies in better city planning. You know, we've got bad diets here in the U.S. There's no doubt that what we eat and how much we eat has a huge impact on our health, but it's calories in and calories out, and the calories out are just as important as the calories in. And uh, beyond that, I mean, you you can eat very little and still be super out of shape if you never move around, right? So um, as these doctors reminded us, um, because it it's, seems perfectly normal, you know, to drive to the gym, to park in the parking lot, take the escalator to the, to the health club and walk on a treadmill to get your exercise, um, you know, that's, that's something we take for granted in the U.S. A lot of people do it. Uh, we used to not have to go to the gym for exercise. And it was the... It was the walk you didn't think about, the walk you didn't have to plan. You know, the exercise that was not something you had to add to your calendar, but which was happening every day as a part of your normal existence, that's what our car-dependent lifestyle has eliminated. And so now we have to be intentional about getting in shape. And of course, you do that for about a week or, or, or a month after New Year's, and then you stop. And when I asked him whether there were any recent findings on this topic, Jeff shared a recent study that was actually published in his 10th anniversary edition of Walkable City. In China, to get a car, you need to win a lottery, or at least in Beijing, to, because there's limited, there's limited space for cars and they don't want over, you know, to be overrun with cars. And so there's a lottery that I think like one out of 50 people win that allows you to get a car. So it's the perfect randomized experiment uh, about car ownership. 
And so, you know, independent of wealth, independent of all these other factors, um, certain people got a car and certain people didn't get a car. And researchers tracked those people over many years. And they found that um, the, the, the group, compared to the control group that didn't get a car, uh, the group of Chinese who bought a car, if they were older, if they were over 50, gained on average about 21 pounds compared to the group that didn't. One thing I do love about uh, the book Walkable City is how well balanced the information is. And whenever possible, there's a touch of history to remind us of how we actually got here. So I asked Jeff if he could give a short summary of some of the big players involved in shaping the, the car-centric world that we now live in. As the auto industry, I would say even before the auto industry grew into, or I should say the auto business, right? All the, all the uh, business done around driving. Before that grew to become the biggest business in America, um, it was already well integrated uh, in government in a way that collectively a decision was made um, quite happily, optimistically, and, um, you know, not without, not with, not with tremendous resistance, um, but with some resistance we can talk about, it. a decision was made uh, that America was going to become a driving country. So the um, decision to reorganize our landscape around the car, again, not as, a, not as an instrument of freedom, but as a prosthetic device that you just need to live your life, um, was made with this great excitement, right, around this new incredible machine. You know, and I grew up loving cars, and there's still cars that I love, and they're, they are amazing. And the idea that even the most out-of-shape guy or gal can just whiz around a corner with incredible delicacy and speed and, and feel those G-forces. I mean, it is remarkable. Driving is a remarkable. When you're not stuck in traffic, it's really a pretty incredible experience. And um, so you can see why it was embraced. But what's important to understand is that, you know, people say that Americans voted with their feet uh, and just wanted to be driving people and, and, you know, kind of made that choice in the absence of outside influence, when in fact, um, there was nothing but influence. There was influence in the form of this massive highway building program that made it cheap and easy to get to and from work from a location that's very far away. Uh, it was made easy in the form of FHA and VA loan programs that made it cheaper to buy a new house in Levittown, right? A brand new house in the new suburbs, uh, and by the way, the all-white suburbs, than to stay in your inner city uh, apartment, um, you know, which was old and dingy. Um, the, 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 the loan programs, which, which were, were um, made available after World War II, um, actually made that choice, a, a smart choice, to leave the city and move into your suburban house. Uh, and then, of course, um, there were huge racial factors at work, kind of uniquely in the U.S. that distinguishes us from most other countries um, in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, bigotry and prejudice and people taking advantage of bigotry and prejudice for their own benefit um, also contributed tremendously to the dispersion uh, of, of, of whites ever outward um, from the city center. So these factors all added up. Um, 
to a condition where um, any any you know typical American uh, to stay in the inner city was kind of a weird choice. And of course, with the dispersion uh, came the dependence on the automobile, and it's this uh, you know vicious cycle of more dependence, more driving, more dispersion, uh, more dependence that um, plays out to this day. So since we have gotten so far off the path of what a walkable community looks like, I then asked Jeff to touch on what does, what does a community need to become more walkable? Uh, this is what I've thought about more than anything else. And of course, I think of it in terms of big cities as well as smaller places, but it applies everywhere. It's what I call my general theory of walkability. And um, <clears throat> it asks the question, how do you create a community in which more people are, are going to walk and are going to bike for that matter? Uh, particularly in America where uh, driving is cheap, right? It's heavily subsidized and most people have cars and the car is sitting there in the driveway between you and everything. It's so easy to fall into it. So how do you create a circumstance in which people are going to walk? And the answer is the walk has to be as good as the drive. And to, to accomplish that, it has to do four things simultaneously. It has to be useful. It has to be safe. It has to be comfortable. And it has to be interesting. So when you look at these typical small town communities, um, the first question is, you know, where is walkability possible? And it's really only possible where you, where you have a mix of uses, where, where walking serves a purpose. So that useful category basically directs us to saying uh, the truly walkable places where, where walkability is going to be more of a lifestyle choice and not just um, exercise are those um, places that have, that have uh, main streets or at least a corner store, or a downtown. But the, the way to make a place more useful, of course, is to have the, the greatest number and the best balance of uses in that place. In most smaller communities, that means finding your, own, your old main street. Some, hopefully you have some pre-war downtown somewhere. And then making that uh, a place where more people live. Um, you know, just try to put a 7-Eleven in a cul-de-sac and see what happens. So um, in this first category, the useful walk, uh, I advise cities to actively subsidize the creation of attainable housing in large numbers in their downtown or Main Street, Main Street areas, because then you create actually built-in usefulness that's the first step towards walkability. The second category is the safe walk. I'm going to return to that because it's the most important and it's the easiest to fix. The third and fourth category, I'll just touch on slightly, the, the comfortable and interesting walk. The comfortable walk has to do with shaping spaces. We like to be in spaces that have edges, and this is rather uh, sophisticated as a discussion, but evolutionary biologists tell us that all animals, humans among them, are actively seeking both prospect and refuge. Prospect means we can see our predators before they attack us, and refuge means that our flanks are covered. And that's in our bones. We can't help it. It's been thousands of years that we've evolved as a species. And uh, like all animals, if we don't feel refuge, we're not comfortable. And therefore, when you design a public space, you have to think of it as an outdoor living room. And it has to have good edges, whether it's a square or a street. Um, gaps in the street wall, like a surface parking lot or just an empty lot, make us uncomfortable. Um, similarly, in terms of interest, right, the final category, 
Um, we will just turn around when we get bored as walkers. Like if, if our walk isn't mandatory and it's boring, most people will choose to drive instead. And so that's a mandate to not have parking structures against the sidewalk, to not have buildings that are 500 feet long and repeat, to not allow, as you know, like they did in the Soviet uh, uh, building programs, to not allow the same building to land 20 times, one next to the other, you know, over and over again. So those are all things to keep an eye on. But those take time, right? Having comfortable and interesting streets is a function of what's built alongside the street, and that takes a lot of years to influence if you're a city, if you're a developer, right? The safety category is the most important one, and it pertains to the streets, which is what most, what the, the cities own their streets. I caught myself up because some streets in cities are owned by the state or the county, and that can be a real hassle to fix those streets. But most streets in most cities are owned by the city themselves, cities or towns, municipalities. And so very quickly, if a city is determined to do so, very quickly, they can make their streets safer. The typical street in the typical American city, most people don't know this, is, is engineered. It has a design speed that's 5 to 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. The streets are designed to encourage speeding. And uh, there's a long story to be told about how uh, uh, intellectually corrupt the American traffic engineering profession is. But essentially, it grew up around the design of highways, and then it uh, mistakenly applied the theories that make highways safe to making communities safe. And that would be fine if people, drivers, behave the same way on highways as they do in communities. But the principal uh, outcome of making a uh, urban street or a community street uh, safer by highway standards is to encourage people to drive faster. And speed is the greatest factor in the deadly nature of car crashes. And so, in fact, what we have is an engineering profession in the U.S. that increases risk of death and injury every day in American cities by creating what they call forgiving engineering design. So just to back up a little bit, how do you set your speed when you're on a highway, right? If you're like me, you look for the speed limit sign and then you set your cruise control for nine miles an hour over the speed limit, you know, but, but your, your speed is based on the speed limit. And therefore, anything engineers can do to make the highway more forgiving makes it safer because the speed is a constant. So wider lanes, uh, no trees, one-way traffic, uh, no intersections, big, long swoops, right? All of these things make a highway safer because your speed is a constant. It's called forgiving design. You can also call it elbow room. Now, in a, in a downtown, engineers have applied the same practice. So even though cars are six feet wide plus mirrors and lanes used to be 10 feet wide, uh, in urban places, you know, the biggest, widest lanes were 10 feet wide. Now a lot of cities have 12-foot standards because that came from the highway. A 12-foot lane is a 75-mile-an-hour lane. But people are building those in cities because these engineers mistakenly believed that a forgiving uh, street network would be a safer street network. This is why people are driving 40, 45, 50 miles an hour on streets lined by, you know, shops and houses um, when the speed limit might say 20 or 25 miles an hour. And so very slowly, the engineers, I was going to say the engineering profession, but the profession has not come around. 
But very slowly, individual engineers have come around and said, actually, we should do what they do in Europe, which is we should limit the elbow room so that drivers don't feel comfortable going speeds well above the speed limit. And, you know, they went from losing 500 children in one year in the, in the Netherlands uh, to uh, a little while later losing only nine children in a year because of this massive stop der Kindermord, stop the child murder campaign, where they said we need to engineer our streets differently. No such enlightenment has yet to occur uh, in the U.S. I feel like if you ask the average American, um, what do urban planners or city designers do, um, they'll give you some vague uh, answer that doesn't really connect with our day-to-day life. Um, and yet the consequences uh, of bad designs, we, we have to live with every day. So I asked Jeff, um, what are some next steps that cities can do to actually make our, make our cities more walkable and safer? What cities can do to uh, make their cities and towns and small towns can do to make their streets safer is what I do when I work in cities almost every day. I narrow 12 foot lanes to 10 feet or even sometimes nine feet. I I, uh, make the parking spaces narrower too, where that makes sense. Um, I uh, uh, take, and a lot of cities have these multi-lane one-way pairs. A lot of cities in their downtowns have two or all of the streets one way. When at a certain point in the 60s or 70s, the DOT came in and, and, and placed a one-way network on top of what was originally a two-way network. So the typical street has multiple lanes in one direction, which presents the opportunity to jockey and induces highway-like behavior as opposed to town-like behavior. Um, we uh, add parallel parking against curbs to protect them from uh, drivers. We put in bike lanes wherever we can. Um, our bike lane technology has evolved tremendously over the past decade. So we're finally now doing in the U.S. what they were doing in Berlin in the 1990s, which is the bike lanes up on the sidewalk edge, right? You have street, you have curb. Up on the curb, you have a bike lane, then you have trees, and then you have a sidewalk for pedestrians. That's our new standard. It took us, uh, you know, 30 years to get there. Um, So there's all these little things you can do in cities that we do in cities every day, I have a list of about 10 things. Here's a fun one. When you remove the center line from a two-way street, people drive seven miles an hour slower. There's a number of studies that document that. Why? It's the same concept. You know, people drive the speed at which they feel safe, and the center line makes them feel safe that they're not going to get hit by oncoming traffic. And you remove that center line, and people drive more slowly, more safely, because they're a little scared. And that's what you want drivers to be because they're operating massive pieces of machinery that will crush humans when they encounter them. Uh, They should be operating with a little bit of of, of fear. And on a personal note, I wanted to know how Jeff got into urban planning and what aspects of the job were most rewarding. You know, I was trained as an architect and then I became an urban designer because I realized that... um, the quality of a building doesn't really matter if you're viewing it across six acres of asphalt, right? That, that um, without good urban environments, uh, architecture is somewhat meaningless. Um, but by far the most satisfying work I do is to go into a place like New Albany, Indiana, 
which is a small city outside of uh, Louisville, and uh, walk a bunch of streets, which are two to three lanes, all one way, entire downtown core of maybe 15 one-way streets, and to convince them to convert them all back to two-lane, two-way streets, and actually to convince cities like New Albany to remove traffic signals and put in always stop signs, because when you replace a signal with a stop sign, severe pedestrian injury deaths drop by 68%. Sorry, severe pedestrian injury crashes drop by 68%. And then to come back, well, to watch for three years as they do nothing, and then to hear that in one summer they did everything and they converted their entire street network uh, to no street that has more than one lane in a given direction, and then to come back and meet with the police chief who fought it, who says to me and the cameras, uh, we've never seen a better situation for safety than the outcome of this plan. Uh, crashes are down, people are safer, the downtown's coming back to life, emergency response is actually easier, not harder, because we don't have to loop around. Um, that's what keeps me going. And I've, you know, I've probably done about 40 uh, projects that have been built in one form or another. Um, <clears throat> not all of them have this sort of comprehensive implementation, right? But uh, a lot of them have a lot of implementation, and some of them are complete. And um, it's just so gratifying to see the changes and to learn, you know, and to learn from everyone and then bring that knowledge to the next to the next project. Lastly, I asked Jeff what he would like to see happen in the next 30 years. And what are some positive trends that are happening today? We, we had a dream scenario 30 years ago that we did not achieve. So my mentors and the creators of the new urbanism movement, <clears throat> Andre Stuani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg, their husband and wife, uh, their firm's called DPZ. And I went there after graduating architecture school because they were the um, most progressive, forward-thinking uh, urban designers that I knew about in the world. Um, they were trying to stop sprawl. They and other folks that we still work with identified 30 years ago um, what a problem sprawl was. Of course, they weren't the first, but they identified it uh, and made it the focus of their work and said, how can, we, how can we propose an alternative? How can we make it legal to build great places again? Because it is illegal in most places to build mixed-use, walkable, lovely places for a bunch of reasons I could get into. And I think they and we succeeded in most places in making it, um, in many places, in making it legal and in giving great examples. Um, however, the sprawl juggernaut continued unabated with full speed ahead. And I honestly, um, understanding the economics and the politics of the U.S., I honestly don't think even in another 30 years uh, we're going to do much to stop sprawl. What I do think, and where I've refocused my own practice, is simply in making a walkable, urban, be it you know small town or city center, but walkable, you know mixed use uh, living available, and uh, you know the choice uh, of more people available to more people, and the choice of more people, um, and making it uh, you know more possible, more attainable for those folks who want to live in more walkable places 
to have that option. And I think what we've seen very clearly is that, in fact, the polling will tell you that about half of Americans would prefer living in a walkable place to having a big house and a big yard. And um, right now that's a, uh, you know, something that very few Americans have is that walkable, livable place. So the, the supply and demand curve is out of whack. Any walkable stuff you can provide gets snatched up quite quickly and it becomes un- unattainable. And so we have a real mandate that certain important trends right now are, are helping us uh, work towards of removing those impediments to having more housing and all aspects of daily life in our walkable places. So I want to point out, you say 30 years from now, I want to point out a few trends that are super positive. Uh, Probably the most important one is the elimination in California and uh, in more and more cities of um, at least a large amount of single-family zoning uh, properties. So California has gone so far as to eliminate the concept of the single-family lot. Any lot in California that was zoned single-family will now hold four units of housing, and you can't stop it at the local level. That's super important. Uh, Similarly, we have cities eliminating their on-site parking requirement. So these days, let's say you own a a store that sells pianos, and the piano owner left, and you want to turn it into a restaurant. Well, guess what? You need to find like 30 parking spaces because the parking requirement for a restaurant per square foot is much higher than the parking requirement for a piano store. Where is that parking? It doesn't exist, so you can't create that restaurant. That's an impediment we're seeing all over the U.S. We have, we have uh, you know, people building apartment buildings next to transit lines being required by local zoning to put in two parking spaces for every, every unit. Well, that's a horrible idea because then everyone's going to end up owning a car because they have a place to put it. So, um, and of course, developers want to be able to follow the market and provide housing without the parking because, in fact, they can build the building for 38% less if it has no parking, as one example showed us. So the, the um, elimination of the on-site parking requirement in city after city, which is snowballing right now, um, is a really positive uh, trend as well. And then, of course, you have a very large um, collection of um, individuals in cities fighting highway expansions. Because, you know, most cities are still, most, most states, most state DOTs are still uh, planning new highways. They're still planning to expand their existing highways. They're still selling highway expansions on the lie, the, the outright lie based on zero evidence that expanding highways reduces congestion, that expanding highways reduces pollution, uh, that expanding highways improves safety. I was working in, uh, I was brought into Houston to help people fight the expansion of I-45 and the Texas DOT was promising that this highway expansion, $10 billion, would make the highway safer, would cause less pollution, and would um, and reduce congestion. Um, every highway they've ever built has been sold on those three promises, and no highway expansion has ever done anything but cause more deaths, has never done anything but Im- increase uh, particulate matter and climate gases. And surprisingly, 
within four years, every highway expansion has been choked in more new traffic than uh, new lanes were that were created. So, um, but more recently now, you see more and more and more and more effective highway revolts where people are saying no. Uh, at least for the time being, in Houston, we've put the brakes on I-45. Um, so these three trends, um, you know, eliminating single-family housing, um, removing the on-site parking requirement, and fighting highways uh, give me hope that uh, at least 30 years from now, many more of us will live in walkable places. Um, I have to say that, you know, I've been around for a while now, and I've seen our cities change, but... When COVID came, everyone thought that everything we understood about cities was now wrong. And we were looking at a new, you know, massive paradigm shift. I can't tell you how many quote unquote paradigm shifts in planning I've, I've lived through. Um, the fact is that, you know, the city, the human city is something that's evolved over about 10 millennia alongside humans. Uh, and uh, it's not something that changes very quickly. And so unless you have massive government programs that push the needle, like as I suggested, you know, massive highway building programs or massive federal loan programs for moving out of the city, um, unless you do stuff like that, our cities will remain quite similar, I think, to what they are now. So if you were at all uh, intrigued or entertained by this interview, I really can't recommend enough the book Walkable City. Uh, and now, like I said, there's a 10th anniversary out. Uh, but just heads up, don't be surprised if you get uh, a bit uh, pissed off um, when you reach the end. Uh, and, and maybe that was the design because uh, you, you do feel like you, you're left wanting to do something. But uh, don't feel bad because Jeff uh, created a sequel, which was Walkable City Rules, um, 101 Steps to Making Better Places, which makes sense because then you have sort of a, uh, a guide to make these things happen. I really enjoyed talking to Jeff and uh, stick around for the next interview. If you're enjoying these blips and uh, the blip report, Spotify does have a support button. Um, and if you push that button, magical things will happen in your life. And, uh, and you'll hear more blips. That's for sure. The magical part, um, you know, depends on how you define it. All right. Stay tuned and talk to you next time.